I shared this morning as we were getting started with this series that I just really feel in my heart that this time together is going to be a little bit different than the other times that we've been here in the last few years in the sense that I just feel like we're going to be revisiting again and again and again some of the same scriptures that we started on this morning, that we're going to use those as a stepping off place in our morning meetings, our evening meetings. I'm not making any guarantee for every meeting. We'll just see how this moves and how this progresses. But I just feel in my heart, and it's just not going away, that in these days, one of the most critically important things that we as believers must understand is the principle of honor as it relates to God and His glory and His power and His anointing, that we must understand honor. Because I say to you tonight by the Spirit of God, we are coming into a time of great transition in the church. Now, you can just write that down in your little black book and you can date it. I can't tell you much more, but I can tell you a little. I can't tell you all of it, but I can tell you some of it. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our times together during this visit to your beautiful city. I want you to turn with me back to the scripture we began with this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, where the Bible says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel said, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But then in the next sentence, he says, but now, but now. And essentially what God is saying here in those two words is that something has now changed. There's a new deal in play. There's a new element that's being introduced and injected into what I'm saying and what I'm doing and the way that I'm going to do these things. He said, but now something's different, says the Lord of hosts. Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. Now, I want to read that again very slowly. I want that to soak in. I want you to put on your, your catchers on your ears. I want you to catch it, and then I want you to place it in your heart in a place that you remember where you put it, and you can go back to it. It's not hard to re- memorize this Scripture. It'll take a lifetime to live it out. But God said, but now something has changed. He said, for those who honor me, I will honor. Now, that scripture is just one of a multitude of scriptures. It's a principle of scripture that's found throughout the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the New Testament, that God likes honor. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. He does not have a self-image problem. He's not walking off a bad childhood. He never has a bad day. He doesn't feel bad about himself, and he's in need of inner healing. He's doing good. Believe me, he's doing very, very good. But there are things in God that are found in the Scriptures that God puts great 
emphasis on and pays a great premium to those that understand it. And one of those things is honor. And he said, for those who honor me, I will honor. But those that despise me or disrespect me is a better translation of the word. Those that disrespect or those that treat me with, ah, so what, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, no big deal. Make a big thing into a little thing and then not treat it with respect. God said, for those that treat me that way, they shall be lightly esteemed. And so we looked at that scripture this morning as it related to America, to our nation and who we are and our identity as a people. And we went back and we we looked at some of the history of our nation and some of the things that God was doing here even in its founding in its first century and how God began stirring in this nation in the 1730s and 1740s and 50s and brought about a radical, radical transformation that was called the First Great Awakening in this nation and how America was birthed in revival and how that that concept, and I'm just playing catch-up here a little bit tonight, how that concept of honor was actually sewn into the fabric of America. That whole concept of honor of God, reverence of God, respect of God, because of the influence, the dynamic influence of the first great awakening where God poured out His Spirit on this nation, that concept of reverential respect and honor of God was sewn into the fabric of this nation at its very conception and remained a part of our nation for many, many generations to come. The greatest threat against America tonight is not an economic threat. It's not a military threat. It's not all of these scenarios. It's not that your Internet won't work tomorrow. So what? How, how, how long did we get along without that anyway? I don't know. We won't chase that rabbit. The greatest threat to America tonight in many people's eyes is poor cell reception, inability to find Wi-Fi. No, the greatest threat to our nation tonight is that we become a nation that no longer understands the honor and reverential respect and fear of God. That's the greatest threat to this nation. It's not any of these other things. It's that we lose our identity as a people and the respect that this nation had in its inception and our our desire to bring honor and glory to God. Would you look with me, please, at Isaiah chapter 43? Isaiah 43, 18 says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise." Now, I thank God for everything God's done in the past. We build upon the foundation of other generations that knew God and walked with God and reverenced God and respected God and prayed. 
Their ceiling becomes our floor. We grow. I mean, I think sometimes, I mean, Yvette and I were talking about it many times, about how we were so passionate as teenagers in pursuit of the Jesus Revolution and the charismatic movement of the 1960s and the 1970s. And and we went here and we went there and we went here and there just to be a part of whatever it was that God was doing. I would drive hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles and stand out in the heat, stand out in the cold, stand out in the sun, stand in the pouring rain outside coliseums and convention centers just to get a seat, one little seat, somewhere in a convention center where Catherine Kuhlman was ministering. Not for Catherine, not for the miracles, not for the healings, not for all the things that would go on in those meetings, but just to be in his presence. I went to Oral Roberts' meetings. It was wonderful. I went to Billy Graham's meetings. It was wonderful. I went to this one and that one and this one and that one and all of these others, and they were all great, but there was one place that I knew that I could go and be there, and God would be there in an extraordinary way by His presence. And I was willing to drive however far I had to drive, stand in whatever conditions I had to stand in, waiting for the doors to open, just to get in that place to be around that presence. That's the amazing, astounding thing, is what we used to drive hundreds of miles just to experience once you have in your church every Sunday. And not just here, but in this one, and 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 that one. And and now all of these places all across America, these places all around the world, little pockets, little pockets of people that get it, that understand it, that have had a revelation of the glory of God and cherish that presence and pursue that glory that are miraculously dissatisfied because they won't hunger. They hunger and they thirst for more. Now, I want everybody to look at me, please, with both eyes, and I want you to listen to me now with both ears. I'm going to make one of the most profound statements that anybody will ever make in this church. And I know there have been some great statements made, but this one is worth remembering and writing it down in your heart. This is going to be really, really, really profound. Is everybody ready? All seat backs and tray tables in the upright and locked position and seat belt sign is on. Are we ready now? All right, here we go. The move of God moves. You need me to say that again? The move of God moves. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But church, the way he does things is subject to change. It's subject to increase. It's subject to decrease. It is subject to being altered and modified. All Now, now I want to be very, very clear. This is like being recorded, okay? Listen. God honors His Word. God never lies. God never goes back on anything He's ever promised. I want to be very, very clear in saying that. However, though every man be made a liar, God's true to His Word. Beloved, there come times and seasons where everything in God changes in order to bring about an increase. And those that will adapt to that season of change 
will be like a surfer on a surfboard out on the beach that waits for wave after wave. We were out in California in May. All these young people were out on surfboards, and they'd just kind of be paddling around and and floating around out there, and the waves would come, and the waves would come, and the waves would come. But they were waiting. I mean, they were just waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden, it was like you cued them or something. Everybody would start frantically paddling and, and getting their surfboard lined up because we've had wave after wave after wave after wave after wave, but there is a wave that is coming. We see it. We see it. We see it, and we want to be ready and positioned, and we want to be in such a posture with the surfboard as to be at the right place at the right time to catch that wave. And when that wave would come in, they would get it. They would ride all the way to the beach. They waited for that thing that was different because something had changed. God says, don't get hung up on the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? And then he goes on to talk about these wonderful promises that are going to follow. Yesterday afternoon, as we were descending to land here in your beautiful city, I looked out the window of the plane, and I could see these large electrical transmission lines. I don't know where we were. I, I don't know if we north, south, east, or west. But it was a pretty day. But you could see these big high-power lines that were carrying all the electricity into the city. These big lines up on big, big power poles way up high that were carrying. I mean, Pastor Steve, I don't know anything about electricity. I don't know how many volts or, or, or whatever, how all of that works. But I do know that everybody that turned on a light, an air conditioner, a computer, a stove, a television, anything requiring electricity yesterday afternoon, it came through those lines. But it was interesting to watch how those transmission lines would go straight, straight, straight as an arrow headed for the city, but then all of a sudden it would turn. I mean, it's like you've got a long line you know, a mile or more of lines, but then for whatever reason, what had been going exactly this way, it turns, and it goes that way for a while, and then it will turn again as it moves across the grid to bring the power to this city. And I was looking at all that power and all that electricity that was flowing into Minneapolis yesterday afternoon and how all of that power would periodically just make a turn. There was nothing wrong with it, but to get where it was supposed to go, to meet the need where the demand was being made, it had to adjust and adapt and make the turn. And for electricity traveling through that transmission system, if it came to that place of turning, and it did not, for whatever reason, make that turn, it would be just a big firework show, a big kaboom, some smoke and some sparks would fly in the air, and all of that power would be in a moment just dispersed, and it would be gone. But because of the transmission lines and that power was able to make those turns, 
It got to your house last night. It cooked your dinner last night. It ran your television. It charged your telephone overnight. But it had to make turns and adjustments as it moved along. We are coming into a moment of history in our nation, and not only in this nation, but I believe in the earth of a turn in the way God deals with His church and the way God deals with His people and ultimately the way God is going to deal at the end of the day even with nations themselves. And those that cannot lean into the turn and make that adjustment are going to be smart, big sparks and smoke and kaboom and will be gone. But those that can make the adjustment and can make the turns that the Spirit of God wants to make in our generation are going to go into greater and greater and greater levels of the glory of God and the anointing of God and the blessings of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, the fulfilling of everything that God has promised It is going to come bigger. It is going to come faster. It is going to come with less and less effort in the hearts and in the lives and the bodies and the finances and in the ministries that can make those turns. And I'm warning you tonight that we're rapidly approaching like electricity racing through the power lines. There's a turn up ahead, and it's got a big sign on it. And that sign says honor. That sign says honor. Because God is getting ready to do a new thing. Would you turn with me to the book of Genesis? Let's just start out in Genesis chapter 3. I want us in the next few minutes together, we're going to hit highlights of the entire book of Genesis. And it's the encounters that God had with people. The first one that's recorded there that I want us to look at is the encounter that God had with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God had created this embassy. A bit of heaven had been established on the earth. And God had made a man and made a woman and placed them in this amazing paradise in the earth. Had given them dominion over all of His creation. There was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no poverty. There was no strife. There was no death. I mean, it was idyllic. It was just like heaven. Now, into this beautiful place comes the devil, disguised as a serpent. And in verse 1, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You'll not eat of every tree of the garden? And so here's sweet little Eve let me give you, let's just take a time out here. Some snakes starting a conversation with you, don't. Don't. I mean, you can always tell when the devil's lying, his mouth starts moving. You can always tell. It's a, it's a giveaway every time his mouth starts moving. You can go, hey, he's lying. So here he comes. Has God really said this? Here's sweet little Eve saying to the snake, Oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you'll not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And then the snake said to the woman, you 
you will not surely die. Where did you get an idea like that, lady? For God knows in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Beloved, she was already like God, already created in the image of God, already clothed with the glory of God, already God's first daughter. She was God's only daughter. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, why did she do this? She wanted more of God. She didn't want to sin. She wanted more of God. And she thought this snake had hit upon a pretty good idea of how to get more, even if it contradicted what God said. And so she took of the fruit, and she ate it, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they saw that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves covering. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? Adam and Eve are hiding out, and God comes walking in the midst of the garden saying, Adam, 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 where are you? Beloved, any time God ever asks a question, he's never looking for information. God ever asks you a question, he already has the answer. He knew where they were. He knew that he was playing cat and mouse, hide and go seek with his son and his daughter. Adam, Adam, where are you? And so the Lord called. And so Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate of it. I mean, God is walking in the garden going, Adam, Adam, where are you? Where are you? He knows full well where he is. And so Adam comes sneaking out of the bushes naked, and God says, why did you go hide from me? And he said, because I was naked. He said, who told you you were naked? Well, he lost the glory that had rested upon them because of the sin that they committed. And then look what the Lord said. God asked the question. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat like God didn't already know? Now, let's look at Adam's response. Adam fesses up, but this is his story, and he's going to stick to it. He said, well, yeah, but the deal was it was the woman's fault, and you gave me the woman, so you're an accomplice of the woman, and and you you, were, you could have stopped it, but it's the woman's fault. And so God buys this, and he turns to the woman, and he said, what is this you have done? And look at the way Eve responds to this. She said, it's the snake's fault. Where did the snake go? That snake, I didn't do it. Adam's ready to lawyer up. The woman's ready to lawyer up. She's pointing the finger at the snake. Snake did it. I didn't do it. Snake did it. And so God looks at the snake, and he deals with the snake. 
And sin has come into the world. I won't read the rest of the chapter, but you know what happened as a result. But I want you to look tonight at this conversation and how Adam and Eve related to the creator and sustainer of the entire universe who comes walking in the garden asking questions. Where are you? Keep your mouth shut, Eve. Maybe he'll pass by. Just lay low. Maybe he'll keep walking. He's looking for us. Just shut up. Don't breathe. Don't, don't, do, don't make a move. Maybe we'll pull this thing off. Just lay low. And then Adam realizes it's not, so he just comes out. God's saying, you know, what's the deal here? Well, it wasn't my fault. It was her fault. So he turns to her. What happened here? It's not my fault. It's the snake's fault. Can you get a picture of this man and this woman talking to God like this? So go ahead and read the rest of the chapter when you get home tonight for all the details. Look at chapter 4. Adam and Eve had children, Cain and Abel. You remember the story of Cain and Abel. They had these two boys, and these boys grew up into young men. And they came time to offer sacrifice. And Abel offered a sacrifice unto the Lord. Let's look at verse 3. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground of the Lord. And Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat. And the Lord respected or honored Abel and his offering. God honors Abel and his offering. But verse 5 says, but he did not respect or he did not honor Cain and his offering. Now we could teach that scripture several different ways tonight. One was a blood offering and one wasn't. One was first fruits and one was the leftovers. There's all kinds of way to approach this. But the reality is both of Adam and Eve's boys brought offering unto the Lord and the Lord respected Abel's, but he did not respect Cain's. And so verse 5 said, Cain was very angry very angry. He passed the level of being angry over into the red line realm of being very angry at God. And his countenance fell. And so the Lord came to Cain, and here's the God of the whole universe talking to Cain in the midst of Cain's angry fit that he's throwing at God over the fact that God had not properly honored and properly respected the offering that he gave him. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Come on, Cain. Why are you so upset? Why has your countenance fallen? Verse 7, the Lord said to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Come on, Cain. If you're doing well, if this is really an offering, if you're really giving an offering of honor to me, it will be accepted. What does God need with an offering? He doesn't need an offering. He's looking for honor. He's looking for honor. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. God is warning Cain, if you do not honor me with a heart that really wants to honor me, sin lies at the door. But the choice is going to ultimately prove to be yours. And it's desire for you, but you should rule over it and deal with it. 
So verse 8 says, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. They talked about it. They talked about worship. They talked about honor. They talked about giving offerings to God and being a blessing unto the Lord. But Cain just couldn't get over this thing. He, he just could not get over it. And it came to pass later when they were in the field. I don't know how long, I don't know what length of time elapsed here. It might have been a few minutes. It might have been an hour. It might have been a day. It might have been a week. It might have been a month. We don't know how long elapsed here. Time did pass. And they were one day out in the field, and Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. In verse 9, the Lord comes in the field like he'd come in the garden looking for Adam and Eve, and the Lord comes to Cain, who has just murdered his brother Abel, and look what God says. Hey, Cain, just like I came looking for your daddy going, where's, where's Adam? Where did Eve go? God comes in the field and he said, Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And look what Cain said to God. He said, I don't know. That was a lie. That was a lie. He just blatantly lied to the very face of Almighty God. He told a lie. But he didn't just leave it at that. He went on to say, I don't know where he is. And then he asked a question. Am I my brother's keeper? That sounds like a 13-year-old shooting his mouth off in arrogance and rebellion to his father after he just lied to his father. I don't know where Abel is. And what's the big deal? Who appointed me to be the keeper of my brother? Is it my responsibility to go? I mean, since when do I have to take care of Abel? Since when? I mean, why is everybody always picking on me? Abel can do whatever Abel wants to do. I mean, why are you hassling me about Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you understand who this smart mouth is talking to here? Well, where did he learn that? He got it from his mama and his daddy. He got it from mama and daddy. He learned that you can just talk to God any way you want to talk to God. And you can blame other people and you can lie. And I mean, God will just come moseying along asking dumb questions. And you can just talk to him any way you want to talk to him. You can treat him any way you want to treat him. And hey, he's God and he'll just stick around and be cool and try to work it out. I mean, here's Cain lying to God and then shooting his mouth off at God. Well, you can keep reading the story on your own to figure out all the, the stuff that happened next. But over in, in chapter 6, Genesis 6, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and Daughters were born to them and goes on to describe the wickedness generations later after Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel had come and gone. And the earth began to be populated with people and their wickedness was offensive to God. God was troubled and grieved with them. And verse 3 says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever 
for he is indeed flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. And he goes on to talk about the condition that was in the earth, and the evil, and the rebellion, and the intents of the heart was evil continually. And verse 6 says, the Lord was sorry that he'd made man, and he was grieved in his heart. I mean, all these generations later, God is grieved and regrets what began in Eden with Adam and Eve because of where it had ultimately gone. And so God just decides, I'm going to destroy it all. I'm just going to destroy everything. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill it all. I'm going to destroy it all. I'm done with this. I'm done striving. I'm done looking and searching and blessing and doing all of these things and in the midst of all of this. But look at verse 8. But Noah, Noah, one man, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, according to another verse in the Bible, says Noah was what? A preacher of righteousness. In the midst of all the perversion, all the sin, all the rebellion that was so bad, God had even decided that I just wish I'd never bothered with all of this. There was one man left in the earth that still honored God and still walked before God and served God. Now, there'd been one before, sixth generation down from Adam and Eve, a guy by the name of Enoch. You can go read the story of Enoch. He'd heard the story about his great-great-great-granddaddy and what his great-great-granddaddy had lost because of sin. And I believe the worst punishment that Adam ever endured as a result of the fall is he had to live with the memory of what it had been like before. He lived with the memory of what it had been like before the fall until he died. And he told that to generations to follow. And there was a young man six generations down by the name of Enoch, and Enoch heard that story and thought, golly gee, I sure wish I could have that relationship with God. God said, son, you can't. And God used to come down and walk with him. God was so pleased with him that ultimately Enoch didn't die. God just took him, just took him to heaven, said, I just can't live without you, took him to heaven. But all the sin and rebellion in the world, God found one man that honored him. His name was Noah. And so they built a ship out of wood. That was a lot of sawing. They did not have Home Depot and Lowe's and electric tools. That was a lot of work building a boat like that. God said, for one that will honor me, I will save them. And you remember the story of Noah and the ark and what God did. I've got to move very quickly over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, the Lord comes, chapter 11 actually, but we we pick up in chapter 12. The Lord comes to a guy by the name of Abram. And he said, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. In verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. And God said, I will bless you. I tried to bless Adam and Eve, and they had the infamous talk with the snake, and they lost it. I would have blessed Cain and Abel, but Abel was dead, and Cain had an attitude. And I tried to bless others, and I found one by the name of Enoch. And I took him, and then I grieved over the whole thing and was going to destroy it all except for one in the earth 
that was named Noah, and so I went and saved him and his family and thought, well, I'll keep trying if I've got one that still honors me. But now he comes to Abram, and he says to this man, I will make you a great nation. He said, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now what did Abram do to deserve this? Nothing. But God saw something in the content of his heart that he liked. He liked it so much, he came to Abram, and he made a covenant relationship, even changing his name to Abraham. And you've heard that teaching about Abram and Abraham and the covenant and all the promises of God and how now, according to Galatians, all that has come upon the Gentiles through Christ. We're not going to go there tonight. But what begins to emerge in this relationship with Abram, who became Abraham, is here's this God that created Adam and Eve and put them in a place of perfection called Eden that only wanted to bless people. He only wanted to bless people. He tried to bless them, he, and they missed it. He tried to bless Cain and Abel. They missed it. He kept trying to, he found one in Enoch. He blessed him. He saved one that would honor him by the name of Noah. But he found one in Abram, and he made him Abraham. And what God begins to relate to Abraham is, son, I just want to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Hey, I'm an old man. I don't have any kids. No problem. I don't have anything. No problem. I've got everything you need. And so we begin to watch this relationship in the unfolding chapters that follow of this story of Abram who became Abraham, it just seemed like every time God showed up at Abraham's house, it was, Abraham, guess what? I've come to bless you. And Abraham became a friend of God. Now, one of the great secrets that most people don't understand, and I don't have time to get into it tonight, is that God loves everyone but he doesn't like everyone. God has friends. God really has friends. And God will do things for his friends that he won't do for people that he just loves. You see, everybody's loved of God, but not everybody's liked of God. Some of you are staring at a hole in me right now. I'm dying a thousand deaths here. It's not that complicated. How many people here have relatives that you love, but you really don't like? Raise your hand. Anybody got relatives you love, but you really don't like? Okay. God's got lots of relatives. Got lots of relatives. Got lots of kids. And he loves them all, but he doesn't like them all. Now, don't let that engender some kind of displaced feelings in your heart to God doesn't love me as much as he, I mean, I mean, don't go back to your something that happened over a bowl of ice cream when you were four with your sister. I mean, just give us a break. Mommy didn't give me that, but he gave it to my brother. Don't go there. It's not up to God to decide who he likes. It's to his children to decide who he likes. And God loves everybody, but he likes those people that will honor him. 
And all you've got to do tonight is purpose in your heart. I'm going to be a person that honors God, and you will automatically be moved from the family side of the list over to the friend side of the list that not only God loves, but God also likes. It's all over this issue of honor. And because Abraham honored God, he became a friend of God. And when he became a friend of God, all God could do was come and bring him all these goodies and all these promises. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And, oh, I don't have any kids. No problem for me. Well, I think I'll just go fix it. Will you go make that Ishmael thing on your own, and I'll just wait until you're 100, and then I'll do what I'm going to do. And you remember that story. But it was all about God just, I'm just going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you nations. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. I'm going to give you cities that you didn't build and crops that you didn't plant. And I'm going to give you nations. And I'm going to, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. All the while, I'm just making you richer and richer and richer and richer and healthier and blessed because I like you, Abraham. <laughs> I mean, I just really like you, Abraham. And Abraham responds by saying, well, I like you too, God. Give me five. By the time you get to Genesis 15, Abraham's asking for some more. <laughs> like he, he hadn't got enough already. He's asking God, well, well, what else will you give me? God said, well, let me think a minute. Oh, I already got it. Let me give you some of this. Let me give you some of that. And so now the father of many nations has now identified the God of the universe as a great celestial Santa Claus. That every time he comes around, he's bringing a big, big bag of goodies. And so that becomes part of Abraham's understanding of who God is. He's the God that brings the goodies. He's the God that brings the blessings. He's the God that does all these good things for him. Well, that understanding of who God was rubbed off on his son Isaac. And Isaac came to know God as the God that brings all the goodies. And Isaac had some boys. You remember that whole episode of Jacob and Esau. And I mean, they were greedy. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were pretty greedy little customers. I'm, I'm telling you, Esau was such a, let's don't go there. But I mean, Jacob was saying to Esau, Esau's hungry, needs to eat, and it's like, okay, I'll get you something to eat. Just give me your blessing. You mean the one my father gave me? Yeah, that one will do. Okay, I can probably get another one. It's no big deal because we're living under grace. We're living under grace and goodness, and God will come, and blessing will come. And here today, gone tomorrow, but you can always get some more. And so Jacob got his blessing. And so watch the evolution of the life of Jacob. And we're going a long ways from the Garden of Eden. As Genesis continues to unfold, Jacob gets Esau's birthrights and his blessings. And there was a great blessing upon the life of Jacob. He had dreams and visions of angels and open heavens. But all the while, his name, Jacob, meant basically schemer. You didn't want to buy a used car from Jacob. 
oh, yeah, it runs, it runs great, you know. Owned by a little old lady from Pasadena, you know. I mean, it's just wonderful. Jacob wanted every blessing he could accumulate because that was Jacob's understanding of who God was, was a God of blessing. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. That was Jacob's entire understanding of who God was, is he's the one every time he shows up, you just get blessed and blessed and more blessed and more blessed. And you remember the story of how Esau was out to get him, or he thought he was, and Jacob believed Esau was going to get him. He was out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, and he just happens to run into the angel of the Lord. And any time you find angel of the Lord, and it's spelled with a capital A in the Old Testament, that's an Old Testament encounter with Jesus. At least 27 times, Jesus appeared to people in the Old Testament. And so here's Jacob out in the middle of nowhere. Why don't we just go over there to chapter 32, Genesis 32. Jacob is out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, and he runs into Jesus. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and a man with a capital M wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Here's Jesus begging this skinny little descendant of Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac, begging him, let me go for the day breaks. But here's Jacob replying to the God that created the whole universe, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now, I really have a struggle tonight believing Jesus was really trying to get away. But that's a whole other thing. God likes to be sought by people that are diligent. But look at his attitude. He's out here wrestling with God. God is saying, let me go, let me go. The daybreak's coming. No, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He said, no, really, man, I got to go. It's getting late. Please let me go. Jacob has got God in a headlock. God's begging to let him go. And he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And Almighty God is put in a position. He said, well, if that's what I'm going to take, I guess I'm going to have to do that for you. But do you see the idea here that Jacob's just doing what he learned from all of his relatives? That when God shows up, the only reason he comes around is to bless. And so they just knew God in a realm of just blessing, blessing, blessing. Gimme, gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy, and I will take all you can gimme. Now that is the theology of the book of Genesis with everyone that you read about here. I mean, we're doing it really fast. But everybody identified God only as a God of blessing. You can lie to him. You can hide from him. You can shoot your mouth off to him like a 13-year-old kid shooting off his mouth to his mother or his father. You can go out here and you can do all of this crazy stuff. But hey, when the smoke clears and the dust settles, if he's still around, you can get another blessing out of him. 
That's the evolution of the way that people related to God. And Jacob was probably one of the best examples. You remember the story of Joseph, Joseph, the young man Joseph, and how God appeared to to Joseph. How did God appear to Joseph? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you, Joseph. Hey, about time. Everybody else in my family tree got blessed. But Joseph made a mistake. He told all of his brothers too much about the blessing. You remember the story of Joseph's life, how his brothers took him out, were going to kill him, decided instead to sell him, and how he went down to Egypt as a slave, and the whole episode in Potiphar's house and then in the prison. And yet Joseph, because of the blessing of God, at age 30, He was the prime minister of Egypt. Why? Because God had been faithful to do everything that God said he would do. I am a God of blessing. Aren't we glad that God likes to bless people? Amen. 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 I believe it with every fiber of my being that God is a God that loves to bless people. I got in trouble in Virginia years ago. I made that statement in a morning meeting in a church somewhere in Virginia. I said, you know, God's a God of blessing. There was some guy in the morning meeting that just stood right up. And it was one of those stand-ups that you stand up so everybody in the whole church will know you just stood up. And, I mean, he went stomping out like this, and he slammed the back door. And I saw the pastor of the church jump up and go out the back door. And I'm thinking, what did I say? I mean, back in those days, we used to have a lot of them running out the door. I mean, they used to run out the door every morning. They used to run out the door every night. That was just the way it was in those days. When God would come, half would hit the floor and the other half would hit the door. And I mean, but we've about thinned them out now, Pastor Terry. You wouldn't be here tonight if you were a part of that crowd. We've about thinned them out. They don't come and we don't go. Just that simple. But, I mean, this guy was all right. I just keep on going. And way after a while, the pastor comes back in, sits down next to his wife, and she's all worried and concerned. She leans over, and he's kind of whispering to her. And I see kind of a little chuckle between the two of them and thought, well, it must not have been too bad. And I went to the pastor after the morning meeting. I said, what in the world was that all about? He started laughing. He said, that guy is really mad at you, and he's never coming back to this church because he said, John Shiver's a heretic preaching false doctrine. And I said, I am? I did? What did I preach? He said, that man in there is a heretic. He just said in church, God wants to bless you. And everybody knows that if God blessed all of his people, they wouldn't love him anymore. And now I kind of got over my stunned silence, and then I started laughing. And I'm, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, you couldn't do that to a dog. You couldn't tie a dog to a tree in your front yard on a rope and just go out there about every third day and give him a little food and give him a little water right before he starved to death because you thought you fed him every day, he wouldn't love you anymore. I mean, that guy was making just about as much sense. Of course God wants to bless his children. I will not retreat from that. If you're upset with me right now, just don't damage the door when you leave. The Bible teaches that God is a God of blessing, but He's also a God of more than just blessing. 
And so Joseph was blessed. Jacob was blessed. All the descendants in every generation going back to Adam and Eve in the garden, all of them were blessed and they identified with God as a God that would bless them. And every time God showed up, it was always about, oh, he's back. Gimme, gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy. What you going to give me? And that was the way everybody understood God. Joseph died. And 400 years elapsed between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. Would you turn over, please, with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. God has essentially been silent. God has essentially, as far as the record of Scripture, just not been doing that much because His people were slaves in Egypt. And you remember that whole story of the slavery? But 400 years passes, and in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord, the same angel of the Lord that had appeared unto Jacob, the same one Jacob put in a headlock that said, let me go, let me go, the same one that Jacob had refused to let go until he blesses him, shows up in Exodus chapter 3, 400 years later, this time in a glory-filled bush that was ablaze with the fire of God. And Moses looked, and it was a curiosity. It was an oddity. The bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And the Lord, the same Lord that Jacob had in a headlock, refusing to release that he, until he blessed him, the Lord saw that Moses is now turned aside to look. And God called to him from the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And it was like, here am I. Just lay it on me. I've heard about you. I've heard about the good stuff you do. I've heard about your great power. I'm ready. Just load me down with blessing. And he said, here am I. And then the Lord said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, ha-ha, the God of Isaac, hello, and the God of Jacob, the schemer that put me in a headlock and would not let me go until I blessed him, I'm back. Only Moses' reaction is now different. The Bible says Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. Jacob would put him in a headlock. Moses is terrified and trying to say, how am I going to get away from this glory before it kills me? You remember the story. He said, I've seen the oppression of my people that have been slaves in Egypt. I'm calling you to go down there and deliver a message to Pharaoh for me. You go down there and tell Pharaoh to let them go or else. And Moses, I don't want to tell him that. You go down there and you tell him what I told you to tell him. You say, you go down there and let my people go. You better do it. You better do it. Well, what if he doesn't want to do it? You let me take care of that. Moses went down there and began to deliver the word of the Lord to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh had a learning problem. And the one 
that had only been known as the mother load of all blessing in the book of Genesis begins to systematically destroy Egypt, taking it down one piece at the time, destroying all their idolatry, all of their gods, ripping it to shreds, tearing it up before Moses' frightened eyes. I've got to skip so much, but you remember how they, Pharaoh finally got it and let him go, and God brought him out, and they went to the side of the sea, and Pharaoh sent his army, and God split the sea, and they went across, and the Egyptians followed, and God brought the water together, and the entire Egyptian army was just nothing but bubbles coming up for a few seconds, and that was the end of the whole thing right there. And how they went over to the other side. And how God came upon them. And the Bible says God healed them all. I'd say that was a blessing. God blessed them all with all the riches of Egypt. I would say that would be a God of blessing. God came and caused a river to flow out of a rock. And caused bread to fall out of heaven for them to eat. I'd say that was a blessing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their shoes did not wear out. They had need of nothing. By day he was a pillar of cloud, by night he was a pillar of fire, brooding over them, saying, come on, let's go. I'm going to take you to the place of blessing that I promised to your great, 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 granddaddy Abraham. I'm going to do this thing. And you remember the trials that they went through. But turn over one more scripture tonight to Exodus chapter 19. We get to Exodus 19, and God tells Moses, after saying all these things, bringing them on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, and you'd indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be a special treasure to me above all the people of the earth is mine, and he will make me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. God's going through this discussion, and then the Lord speaks to Moses, and he said, you tell the people In three days, I'm coming. You tell them to prepare themselves, to prepare their hearts, wash their clothes, get ready. In three days, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. In three days, everybody mark your calendar. We will be taking roll that day. This is going to be required attendance for everybody. Three days from now. I'm coming. And so it was on the third day in verse 16 of chapter 19. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. When the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people. Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, 
lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate. And then God literally, in verse 24, yelled at Moses. And he yelled at Moses, and he said, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And then in chapter 20, God begins giving the commandments. Something changed between the God of Genesis and the God of Exodus. Something changed. The same God in Exodus 19 that's telling Moses, tell those people to don't even come around the mountain or they'll die. Don't even touch this mountain or their cattle or their livestock or their children, lest they die, Moses. This is the same God over in Genesis that Jacob's got in a headlock saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. The same God in such power and glory that's on the mountain as to be accompanied by lightning and smoke and fire and earthquakes is the same God that came to talk to Cain and Abel and here's Cain saying, I don't know where he is. What am, are you talking to me? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you see the parallel here? What God did and the way God related to people in the book of Genesis has now suddenly changed at the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3. And if you continue on in the book of Exodus and read chapter 20, In verse 20, Moses then tells the people after the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the smoke and the trumpets and the voice of God saying, stay back, stay back, stay back, lest I break out upon you and you all be burned to ash. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Beloved, we believe in a God of blessing. We believe in a God of glory. We believe in a God that heals. We believe in a God that prospers. We believe when we tithe, the windows of heaven open over our lives. We know if we give, it is given unto us, good measure, pressed down, shaken together. We know that all the promises of God are good, that God wants us to be the head, not the tail. He wants us to be blessed in the city and blessed in the field, that God wants to bless our going out and our coming in. God wants to bless everything, every place our sole of our feet touches. We believe it. We believe it. We believe it. We believe it because it's true. It's a revelation that God has given to the church in our lifetime that contradicts the religious idea of God mean and stingy that so many held to before. We thank God for that revelation. But brothers and sisters, I see right ahead of us the power line is about to make a shift. It's about to turn that God is going to be honored and God is going to demand respect. And He's going to be more than a celestial Santa Claus that we just come with a gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy, and I'll take all that you can give me, and I'll quote what you said to you until it's manifested in my life. We're coming into a day of shift because God is going to start dealing with us differently to bring us into a place 
of greater and greater and greater exponential levels of blessing. Yes. But beloved, in the days ahead, it's not going to come by the ways it's come in the past. There's one more element that's going to be added to that. And that's the element of honor and respect and reverence for who He is. That's revival. We talked about it this morning about the reason for America's greatness has always been because of the covenant that we made with God as a nation to honor Him. But God will get our attention if we as a church do not become those people like Noah, those people like Abram, those men and women in those points of time in history that came and loved God and reverenced God and respected God and gave Him glory and honor in humility and surrender of our wills that we become people that are barefooted people before a bush that's ablaze with the glory of God. Something is shifting right now that God is going to be a God of honor. Revival came to us in 1993. And we've been around the, the moves of God in, in Florida, the moves of God in Toronto and different places. But it's all been about gimme, gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy. But now we're coming into a day that God is going to say, I've been given, I've been given, I've been given, I've been given, I've been given. Now I'm expecting to be honored and respected and surrendered our lives and our hearts and all we have to Him. And those that cannot make that turn will die in their wilderness. And we're going to go further with this in the days and, and nights ahead. But we're coming into a day that the glory of God, the presence of God, the anointing of God in the church is not going to be optional. So many places, it's like, well, let's have a week of meetings and everybody have a great time, but I mean, we'll get over it, you know, by Friday night. It'll, you know, be business as usual. No, 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 no. We're going to come into a day with such a glorious revelation of who He is. What He is will never be the same. But it's those places and those Christians that have learned the lesson of honor and reverence and being barefooted people in this presence and His glory. Those are the ones that will make the turn and will move to greater level of blessing. Don't be alarmed and terrified about things that you see out there. I want you to know the greatest days of blessing for the church, the greatest days of blessing for you and yours are the days straight ahead if you'll learn this lesson of being a friend of God, a friend of God that honors God and respects God. Would you stand to your feet? Let's pray. Father, we, tonight we just sense that the weather is about to change, that, Lord, a, a season is about to give way to another season. Lord, it's, it's a season of honor where, Lord, we... We love you for all of your benefits. We love you for all of your blessings. But, Lord, we don't live to see what it is you will give us next. But, Lord, we live to give you everything, to give you everything, to honor you, worship you, to yield to you, surrender to you. Beloved, God wants to bless people.
But those in the days ahead are going to be those that will yield. Those that will yield. Those that will surrender. Those that are going to live a lifestyle of conformity to the cross. That are going to live under the blood. Going to walk in in holiness before God. In reverence and respect. Not out of rules and regulations of religion. But people with a heart of honor. People that have a heart of honor. That are jealous for His honor. That are in this thing more for Him than they are for themselves. Father, we honor You tonight. Father, we just tonight surrender to You. Oh, God, tonight we're so sorry for our smart mouth, our arrogant attitude, our greedy motivation. The things of our life that we've lived in that exalt us and our agendas. Father, we're sorry tonight. It's not about us. It's all about you.